The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Hey guys, this is Gordon Runyon from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. Thank you for downloading this episode. hope it's enjoyable and profitable for you. just wanted to let you know that I am scheduled to lead the Book of the Month podcast at Chalcedon uh, in March. I believe it's scheduled for March 5th, and the book that we're going to be discussing is Rush Dooney's Flight from Humanity, about Neoplatonism and its effect on every aspect of our culture today, and so I'm excited about that, and I just want to mention it to you, to invite you to read the book and then listen to the podcast and participate that way. Uh, frankly, that book has affected me a lot, and some of that effect shows up in what's to follow here, and so... That, along with some other uh, Facebook controversies and, and wars, kind of kind of led to what's preached here. So again, hope you're blessed. Hope you enjoy it. I hope it's profitable for you. Thanks a lot. We come to the end of Genesis chapter 1, and we see God has created most everything, and on the sixth day... God decides to create man. We'll pick it up at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now you all know the story. It wasn't long after they had been created that Adam and Eve wound up falling to temptation, taking the one fruit that had been forbidden, why was that? Because, frankly, they wanted to be like God, determining good and evil for themselves. Uh, this started a chain of events that eventually culminated in God deciding that he was going to wipe out the earth with a flood. And I want you to turn forward to chapter 9 of the book of Genesis. Chapter 9. And after the flood is over and Noah and his family have exited the ark, we're going to read here that God restates the mandate that he had given to the first two humans. Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now listen to this in verse 5. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So we see there what I want to focus on is God's statement that he made man in his image. And what we learn there from Genesis chapter 1, it doesn't get repeated in chapter 9, although the image of God language is still used there. What we learn in Genesis 1 uh, that's interesting for our day at least is that when God decided to create man in his image, it says there he made man both male and female. So the creation in terms of even gender is part of what God planned in creating man in his own image. And what our culture kind of needs to hear is that if you're, a, if you're a female, God made you in his image as a female. If you're a dude, God made you a dude because he wanted you to be a guy. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Our culture seems to have this image that what you are is what you think in your head that you are. And then what appears on the outside and the different pieces and parts of your body, those may or may not be kind of interchangeable and you can fix them around as you wish. But God made man, both male and female, in his image. So your maleness is part of the image of God. Your femaleness is part of the image of God. Your body that God has given you to live in is part of him making you in his image. Now, don't get freaked out. That doesn't mean God has a body. We don't have a body because God has a body. That's not what we're saying. But something about the body that we have been given and the mind and whatever other immaterial parts of us are, are within us, that is all a reflection of something about God. And God takes that very seriously. Then we see in Genesis chapter 9, where he institutes a death penalty for murder. You saw that, right? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood must be shed. And so why is that? Well, particularly in that passage, the reason why is because of the image of God. And, and this is even after sin. Right? Adam and Eve fell and got kicked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3. They're cursed there. And we immediately start to see things just go downhill from that point until the flood. You might be, you might be tempted to think that maybe Adam and Eve's creation as little image bearers of God. Maybe that's what they had in the garden. But obviously after the garden things just go downhill. How could you say that men like Lamech who killed a man and kind of defied God to do anything about it. How could you say that men like this, Nimrod, who was a mighty hunter in God's face, how could you say that men like this who defied and, and all that, how could you say that 
the descendants of Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. Obviously, that's been so defaced. Obviously, that was a creation thing and not a post-creation thing. But here, after the flood, after God has wiped out sin, or uh, most of the sinners, he's left eight of them alive. But after God has wiped out the whole race, he then reiterates to Noah, if a man sheds a man's blood, that's not just a crime against the man, that's a crime against God. It's a crime against the image of God in which that man has been created. And so from the very beginning of the world, we don't have to wonder, what's the appropriate penalty for murder? We don't have to wonder about that. God has said what the appropriate penalty for murder is. It's not mean old Moses who made that up. It wasn't Noah who made it up. It was God who created man and says, you strike this man so to kill him, you've made a strike against me. Your blood shall be shed. You will die for that sort of offense. This is why, for instance, it's perfectly acceptable and consistent for us to confess that that little baby in the womb that is created, that's a baby, that's a, a living being made in the image of God. If that's not a living human being, then what is it? It's not feline, it's not canine, it's not bacteria, it's not a wart, it's not a growth, it's a human being with full human DNA. Anybody who persists in saying that the baby in the womb is not human just isn't paying attention to science. It's not just that they're not listening to the Bible, they're not paying attention to science. When that DNA combines and that spark of life shows up and the cells begin to divide, that's living human life. What else could it possibly be? And so when we talk about, yes, abortion is murder, and yes, that's a murder that strikes at the image of God. Not only that, but it strikes at the most innocent versions of the image of God. And so if any murder should call forth capital punishment, abortion falls right in that category. Now we understand abortion, maybe somebody's getting forced, or, you know, I was just reading about human trafficking and what an issue and a problem that still is in the United States. You have women that are kidnapped and forced into sex slavery and all that, and part of their slavery is that when they get pregnant, uh, their their masters will take them down and, and force them to obtain abortions. We're not talking about putting to death a woman like that. But the guy that brought her there should be put to death. The guy that kidnapped her and brought her to kill the baby should be put to death. The doctor that agrees to be paid to put babies to death, that guy should be held responsible for that sort of thing, just as surely as if the wife goes out and hires a hitman to kill her husband or whatever. Right? They're both guilty at that point. And we didn't make this up. This is in the scripture from the very beginning. It's the image of God in men. Now, why do I want to talk about this? I want to bring you forward. You're in Genesis. Go all the way to Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, I want to look at verse 23. This is at the very early stages of Jesus' ministry. And watch what it says here. Jesus 
was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus goes into all of Galilee, into all the villages, and it says he's doing two things, right? He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing all kinds of diseases. It wasn't too long ago we were preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and I said when we got to the first place of this nature, we did a little bit of study on that phrase, gospel, good news, right? Everybody knows that gospel means good news. You got that? We've been hearing that forever. Well, listen, back in this day when this was first being written, the people there understood that gospel meant good news, but it didn't mean any good news. If you went to your neighbor back in the day and said, hey, it looks like my wheat crop's going to come in really nice this year. The guy wouldn't say, well, I rejoice over that gospel. That's not what he would say. He would say, hey, that's good news, brother. I'm, I'm really happy for you. But he wouldn't have used that term. Gospel is not generic good news. It's not any and all good news. The way the ancients used that word gospel, it was the gospel of a coming king. When a king and, a, and the queen gave birth to a son, that's when the gospel would go out. They would send out heralds and messengers who would go out and proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom. You know, uh, King Joe has has had a son, King Joe II. You know, he's the infant son of King Joe. What a great thing it will be when we finally experience the reign of King Joe II. It's good news. It's going to transform everything. We saw this in America here recently. You remember seeing the news reports when President Obama was elected and all the people in the streets and everybody's, they're acting like this is a real gospel, like the Messiah has come and there are people weeping with joy and, and all these things. And why? Because the new guys come and things are going to change. I'm never going to have to make a house payment from here on out and everything's going to be lovely and, and great, right? And then eight years later, completely different segment of the society treated it basically the same way. They might not have been crying and cheering, but there was a sense in a different segment of the society that now, now we're going to clean out the swamp and things are going to get better and, and no more are doing it that way. The good news is that the new guy has come into office and now things are going to be different. And when somebody else comes in the next time, you know what's going to happen? Now, seriously, now we've got it. And that was the way good news, that's the way gospel functioned back in that day. The gospel was the news that a new king was going to come and now we can place all our hopes in this one. Uh, we've had it maybe up and down until now, but here comes this one. The things are going to be different. Things are going to change. Things are going to be better. Rejoice in the good news of coming King Joe the Second, right? And so when Jesus is born, when Jesus presents himself to the world publicly, now gospel means what? The kingdom of God is here. All those things that you called gospel beforehand, you didn't know what gospel was. 
The real king has come. The kingdom of God is breaking out into the earth. And that's huge. And then in verse 23, you see it shifts gears mightily there and says, not only is he proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but he's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Right? Is that a big shift? No. Let me tell you, that's no shift at all. The American evangelical church suffers because we think that it is a shift. We've been taught that the gospel of the kingdom is just the news of what Jesus did for you on the cross and in the empty tomb. And that's the gospel of the kingdom. You believe that, then you're all set. You've got your fire insurance. Everything's good for you eternally from then on. And we've got huge segments of the Bible-believing church in the United States who believe that the gospel ends right there. Don't get me wrong, that is gospel, that is good news, and you must believe that in order to be saved. You must believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Nothing's going to change for you until that becomes real in your life. Amen? And that means repenting and turning away from sin. All of that is real, and I'm not speaking against it. But I am saying that then he goes out and begins to heal He's changing everybody's lives, their lives that they're actually living in their bodies. In their physical bodies, Jesus preaching the gospel is changing everything. Doesn't this just make sense? Genesis chapter 1, when God creates people in his own image, what does he do? He doesn't just create spirits. He could have. What we believe angels and demons are, are spiritual beings who sometimes show up in physical form. God could have made humans like that, but he didn't do it. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. Doesn't this just make sense? Genesis chapter 1, when God creates people in his own image, what does he do? He doesn't just create spirits. He could have. What? We believe angels and demons are, are spiritual beings who sometimes show up in physical form. God could have made humans like that, but he didn't do it. God in humanity joined 
the material with the immaterial. He joined the physical with the spiritual. And it's wrong to say that one is more you than the other. You are your body. You're not a spiritual being trapped inside a physical shell. You're a human. You've been created with spirit and body, with flesh and with immaterial features. And Jesus is in the business of redeeming it all. It's not just your spirit that needs to be saved, right? It's your body. You don't believe me? Just wait and get old, right? Your body needs to be redeemed. And the promise of Scripture is that it will. Because Jesus walked out of the grave on the third day, you will be raised and come out of the grave in a body, a physical body that is eternal and transformed. This idea that death separates the soul and the spirit from the physical body and that you and I will be these see-through creatures sitting on clouds with hearts, that has nothing to do with the Scripture. Scripture says we await a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and that we're going to be dwelling in physical bodies in that place forever. If you're upset about being a physical being, I, I got news for you. <laughs> right? So when Jesus presents the gospel of the kingdom, and part of that gospel is the salvation of your soul from sin, amen, praise God, that's great news. But then when he goes off and after preaching begins to heal people, guess what? Those aren't separate things. Those are together. Why do I say this? Because we live in a day and age. We just finished looking at the gospel or at the book of Colossians in our Sunday morning preaching. We're beginning in Jeremiah. We'll start that study in earnest next Sunday, Lord willing. But what we saw there is the big heresy they were facing in Colossae was this idea that everything spiritual is good and lovely. And everything physical is less good and less lovely. And that can and has throughout church history been couched in churchy terms. I had a neighbor once that freaked out. My, uh, he's a Christian guy. He freaked out. He yelled at one of my kids for something that she didn't do. And he knew he was yelling at her for something that she didn't do. And he came to me apologizing later. I give him credit. He apologized. And he used this language. He said, brother, I'm sorry, I got in the flesh, and I, and I did these things. Well, it better not be in the flesh no more. <laughs> right? Now, I know what he meant. He, he operated with sinful desires and attitudes and all that. But listen, this, it's a ludicrous idea to think that what the Christian needs to do is somehow escape his or her flesh, and retreat back into spiritual things which are much better. Because where did Adam and Eve sin? They sinned spiritually, immaterial, immaterially before they took the fruit. Right. Scripture says Eve saw the tree that was forbidden and saw that it was good. In her estimation, good for food. Right? Where does sin begin in you and I? Sin begins with sinful desires. 
It begins with sinful thoughts that we don't correct and we just let them stew in there. Right? That's where sin begins in your mind, the way you're thinking, in your heart, what you're desiring. That's where sin is. Now, the flesh is perfectly willing to go along with whatever your brain tells it to do and all that. But to think, maybe the goal is just to get rid of this body and then I can be set free and just be pure after that. That's what a lot of the monks in the Middle Ages were trying to do. And what they're whipping themselves. They're treating their bodies horribly for the sake of trying to punish the source of sin in their lives. No, the source of sin in your life is you. Body, mind, soul, and spirit, you apart from Christ are sinful. And the only thing that can be done is resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only hope for those things. And so uh, we have good, solid, quote-unquote, Bible-believing churches who believe that it's a waste of time for a preacher to get up here and do anything other than preach the gospel. And by gospel in that definition, I'm talking about that very narrow uh, thing about what Jesus did to save your souls. Good, you need to be preaching the gospel, you need to have that down and all of that. But to act like if we go from there to actually telling people how to implement the gospel in their lives, to act like now we're doing something different or we're intruding on areas that the church shouldn't be messing with, that's simply wrong. The first church that I went to after I was converted, I loved the preacher. I, I, somebody came to him once and said, can we in the church put out these uh these anti-abortion pamphlets and, and try to get people involved in the, in the fight against abortion? And his answer was no. He wouldn't let them do it. Can we, put out, can we put out these pamphlets from this one particular candidate who's a Christian man and wanting to see God's commandments obeyed? And all, can't, no, you can't do that. And, and, and he said at one point, he explained himself from the pulpit, that the reason I'm not going to let you do that is because the church is just about preaching the gospel. And he said, now, once I've preached the gospel and you've accepted it, then God can, can do whatever he wants to with you. And, and you'll probably find yourself doing a lot more than you thought you would if you really get a hold of this. I don't have an issue with that. But listen, if all God wants me to preach is John 3.16 and what that means for you and your little soul before God... Why did he give us such a gigantic book? John 3.16 is on one page. If that's all I'm supposed to do over and over again, I don't need a gigantic book to do that. You know what? You read everything in the book and you start finding out God cares about how we deal with criminals in society. God cares about things like banking. God cares about things like money and lending. God cares about how you run your business. God cares in detail about how you educate your children and what you teach them. God cares about all these different things. When you go to war, when you don't go to war. All these things are part of this book. And Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. What I'm wanting to tell you right now is the good news of the kingdom. And that is this. There's a new sheriff in town. King Jesus has come. And nothing can remain the same. 
If King Jesus has come into your life, I'm telling you, nothing can remain the same. And if he has come into your life, it must change. And it will change through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So this idea that, that you as a human being, you're this spiritual being, and what happens to your body is really neither here nor there, that is not Bible. That's paganism. Let me show you one more passage before we are done here. Yes. Yeah, we're about to get there right now. Look at first or Second Corinthians in chapter five. Second Corinthians five, starting in verse one. Says, For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. What's the image there? That you and I are traveling around in a temporary body. The image uh, reminds us of Israel in the wilderness. They're going through the wilderness in tents. They don't have their permanent residences yet, but that's where they're headed. That's what they should have been looking forward to. And you and I in this life, we know that the bodies we're in now are temporary. They will die. They will perish. They will fade away. So in that sense, there's an analogy there. We're looking for something permanent even while we're walking around in the temporary. But look at verse 4. Indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. Or some translations will say to be further clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what's it say there? The goal of Christianity is not to be freed from this tent so we can float around as disembodied spirits. That's not the goal, is it? The goal is to be further clothed. Resurrection body. When you and I come out of the grave, when God raises us from the dead, it will be in a physical body. I think it will be recognizable. I think I'll see Carrie and say, Hey, brother, how are you doing? And he'll look at me and say, Ooh, Gordon, that's a good looking body. That's way better than I remember seeing you in. <laughs> And there won't be any sitting there, and, and uh, there won't be anything weird about that. It sounded weird when I just said it, but <laughs> in that day, there won't be anything weird about it. And I'll say, hey, amen, amen, this body's awesome, man. Right? And so the goal is not to separate from physical things or from physical concerns. The goal is to see all those things transformed by the comprehensive all overreaching gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not just three sixteen John three sixteen. It is that, but it's not just that. It's this whole thing, cover to cover. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And it changes, transforms, kills and resurrects everything that it really touches. That's good news. That's good news. You and I get to live in the kingdom of God here and now, being transformed daily.
by the true gospel. That's an amazing thing. That should get you excited. It does me anyway. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.